Talks Podcast. You're listening to Side Talks Podcast. Are, are they listening anymore? No. No. I'm Rachel Morgan. I'm the creative director for Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. And I'm Corey Kraft. I have a song in my heart, too, but um, it's staying there. Um, let's do what you really are here to listen to, uh, and that is us talk about movies, I assume, or or just yell at us. I don't know. <laughs> While we talk. Let's do it. So now it's time for a segment of the podcast called Phone a Friend, where we do just that. Phone a friend. Hello. Brocephus, it's Rachel and Corey. Hey. Hi. What you been watching, bruh? Um, okay. So this I, it came up, I guess, just, you know, as one of these suggested things recently, and I had never seen it. Uh, so I dove in, and um, Tony was really surprised I had ever seen it, and I didn't even know the premise of it, so he really wanted me to watch it. Um, what Women Want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the algorithm failed you. How oh, the algorithm okay. failed you. And, like, I, I really didn't – I remember this movie being a thing, but I did not know the premise at all. Like, I definitely thought he was some kind of, I don't know, reporter or something, and maybe he has to learn what women want or something, kind of like how to lose a guy in 10 days with Kate <laughs> Hudson, something like that. Like, I thought it was just like, well, he's like a reporter for me. And Tony's like, oh, no, there's the whole, like, mystical element to it. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And so – yeah, so we watched that uh, a couple of days ago. And I guess my question is, like, would I think Mel Gibson is attractive if I was a 45-year-old straight woman in the year 2000? Like, hmm. I don't know. It's a, Did people? I think, yes. I think yeah. people did. I think they didn't know about some of the things that he was doing, like verbally abusing people and, um, being, you know. Right. Being weird and racist yeah being a, a racist asshole um and so yeah i think they thought he was a a hunk um he, I mean, I guess he sort of got a hunky body i guess but like his head was still mel gibson's head you know <laughs> I, just, I just don't know well listen could you tell everybody how exactly he gets the the powers and what powers he gets in case people haven't seen this the algorithm may not have shocked everybody the way it shocked you <laughs> okay um it was very well, see, I kept waiting. I was totally had no clue. And I was wondering, is it going to be some, like, mystical situation, like a voodoo priest? It's like, what's it going to be? A curse or something? But he gets, it's like Final Destination. Like he, um, <laughs> Yes, he, it is. Okay, well, so first of all, he's, okay, so he's a bro-bro. And he's, like, very brohemular and not very polite <laughs> and thoughtful with regards to women. Uh, you know, so they set him up to be a douche that you hate, which they succeed. And, like, he gets this. <laughs> box of um so he works in an ad agency and of he gets course this he box does of, of course he does um of like women's stuff like skincare things and pantyhose and you know jewelry and makeup things that like ladies like and he's supposed to i guess you know get in touch with those products to learn more about them to come up with a campaign for them so he puts all the products on and all kinds of things happen and calamity ensues and he knocks over the beauty beads and they go everywhere and then he starts tripping on them in the pantyhose that he had put on, which is weird because when they gave him that box earlier in the day, he couldn't even be bothered to like touch it. Like he was picking up the bra with his pin so he didn't have to touch it like it was like some kind of evidence and he was a detective or something. Like and then by nightfall, I guess because he's been drinking wine and dancing around to Frank Sinatra or whatever, he was like feeling himself and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put all this stuff on and like get in touch with how women think or whatever. And then, yeah, so then he gets 
he's got the hair dryer in his hand and he slips on these beauty beads <laughs> and then he falls into the tub, which was like, run. Like, why is there water in your tub? Anyway. Um, and he electrocutes himself <laughs> into hearing women's voices in their heads, their thoughts. And now he is going to learn what women want. And this movie was made. And, this I, movie and was movie pitched made. and made. I just want to point out and, the the hilarious uh, idea is that he is the ad executive in charge of marketing a bunch of women's products, so he has to take them home and and like use them. When you know the ad agency, if they had any women on staff, you could just be like, "Here, woman ad but agent." But then you'd have to hire a woman, Corey. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, that's the thing. They had just wild. That's I know. What happened. They had just hired Helen Hunt because <laughs> Helen Hunt got the um, got the I guess the creative director position that he thought he was going to get. So they did hire a woman, and then Helen gave everyone the homework of ex- exploring these products. So uh, yeah, the woman did. Yeah, so she came in there and mm. she kind of, you know, and then so because he can hear thoughts and things, you know, obviously there's a whole lot of montages of him in like nail salons and department stores and like, well, so he doesn't know what to do with this power. He first out he's like goobed out by it because he's such a bro. But then he goes to his therapist, which, oh, my gosh, surprise. It was Bette Midler. I was like, oh, my gosh, Bette is up in here. And <laughs> he's like, you have power. Like, this is you, you should you can use this to learn how, you know, how to treat women and stuff. So then he's like, oh, I'm going to use this. So then he starts listening to Helen Hunt's thoughts so that he can steal her um, advertising campaign pitches or whatever. Yep. And, yep. and then, like, I mean, there's stuff. Like, they had this one ad that she turned in, and it's like a woman on a parasail and, and in a picture. And then he, or she, or he, no, she shows up later, having turned in the same exact design almost exactly. And it's just like, in the boss, like, sorry, he already turned that in, you know? And it's like, hold on a minute. If that was that exact, I would be like, that's just so concerning. Like, I would think that he had some kind of like camera hit in my office or something. Like it was too exact. Like it was creepy, you know? And yeah. Not everybody's thinking, how do we sell this product? A woman parasailing. Right. Seems right. And they both specific. And she's just like, wow, he's really good, I guess. And he beat me to it. And I'm like, come on, Helen, <laughs> he's spying on you. He's crazy. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there was, it was like, it was pretty ridiculous. There was this whole thing. There was so much Sinatra. It was like wall-to-wall Sinatra. I couldn't believe how much of it there was. And there was this whole scene where he puts on Sinatra, and he puts on a fedora, and he starts dancing around oh, his no. big dumb apartment oh, no. with the skyline in the background. And I, I audibly was like, oh, my gosh. I said, I literally said, oh, we don't need this. Like, <laughs> so, was just, he was fedorable. And also, the skyline... What, it just you know they're they're this big ad agency people and there's the skyline and there's Sinatra and there's all these things. Seriously, I we we were like three quarters of the movie before we realized it was Chicago. Like they said it was in Chicago, and I'm like, what? So it thought I thought this whole time is New York, and they had actually shown hmm. a um a skyline like a scene, like a picture you know from, from of the skyline previously, and there was no Twin Towers, because that's when I thought it was New York, and I was like, wait a minute, a movie made pre-9-11 set in New York, and there's not, the Twin Towers are not in the shot? Like, this is confusing. This is weird. What angle are they using? So then later, when it became clear that it was Chicago, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's why. But also, yeah, with Chica- Chicago, I'm sure they've got, like, ad agencies, but I don't know. It was just kind of a weird setting. I would have definitely <laughs> picked New York, especially with all the Sinatra and Fedoras and stuff. Um, oh, so true. I know. I would think, yeah. I. You know what, though? I don't 
I have no recollection whatsoever where this film takes place. So is Nancy Myers like a Chicago person? Because maybe, maybe I'm trying to think of trying to think of where her other films take place, other than like you know very beautifully appointed kitchens and and beaches and stuff. Where everybody's wearing linen. <laughs> oh, you can see terrible. something's got to give. Right? Yeah, something's got to give in the okay, holiday. It's terrible. It's complicated. Terrible. And, you know, I've mixed <laughs> lots of potions and creams and stuff together and, you know, facial, mo- whatever. And I can tell you right now it will not. Just don't try it at home. Um, it's not going to allow you to read women's minds. Um, just, just letting you know, Corey, um, I just want to, because you know, Kyle McKinnon is a small, did you know this as a young boy that he watched weird science where they made a babe Uh and he broke his home computer by shoving a bunch of pieces of paper and stuff into his home computer, trying to make a babe. Oh no. So, yeah. So don't do that and don't mix potions together because it won't help. (laughs) No, it is. It's not going to work. Um, but there were, you know, a couple of things. You know, there was the, um, they mentioned eBay, which I thought was a really interesting. You know, it was the year two thousand, so right. eBay that was probably like hot. And they, oh, they also mentioned um, how expensive long distance calls are. That was topical at the time. And um, oh, and then Martha Stewart shows up on TV, not in person, not in the film, but like he's watching TV and she's on there, and it's like you know nineties Martha. So you know, love that Martha, love all Martha, all eras of Martha, obviously. <laughs> Of course. Um, prison it, Martha is a really fun one. This is pre-prison um, Martha, I think, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, that was pre-prison Martha. Um, oh, and there, so he does help his daughter buy a prom dress. And in the montage where she's trying on ridiculous prom dresses, they play Christina's What a Girl Wants. Oh, so, well, I'd like this movie yeah. after all. Yeah, no, you that was don't. Good. And it's just like what, <laughs> what women want, and then they play what a girl wants. Yeah, you know, I thought that was good. I was like, okay, that worked out. And it felt very 2000, and the dresses, the prom dresses were very 2000. So the daughter was 15 in this movie, and that's how old I was when this movie came out. So honestly, if I had watched this at the time, I probably would have been like, oh, yeah, prom dress shopping. Like, I can relate. But that would have been the extent of my relating to it. Because, yeah, Mel Gibson, no way. Well, I'm glad you made it all the way through, though. Because that is a, that is well, a chore. How he got unmagic, or you know, or back to normal, you know, and um, so I had to stick with it and uh, and follow his journey of growth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, somebody had a little lesson to learn, didn't they? And yes, they good did. thing it stuck. Oh man, for the yeah. rest of his career. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, I, oh, I haven't thought about this film in a very long time, maybe if ever. So thank you, Lisa, for bringing this to us because you know. <laughs> I, Me I, too. I, I, had, I, mean, like I didn't even person. know about it. The, the premise of it, just the name of it. So, yeah, I, I'm glad to know now what I know. Oh, and then my last – I'll leave you with this wonderful note. There was the one – the part I hated the most is at one point he, like, talks to his dick. Like, he gave <laughs> him, gives him a pep talk. I was so mad about that. I just, like, thinking about all of – ugh, ugh. So, but that's what women wanted in the year 2000, I guess, was Mel Gibson <laughs> talking to his dick. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Okay. Um, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, what um, I never needed in my life ever was Mel Gibson talking to his dick. I know, but apparently it was a box office success. <laughs> it was a huge hit. And it's, oh boy. yeah. All right. All right. Bye, Bross. We got to go. Okay, bye. <laughs> and now a look at what we're watching this week. So, um, Corey, what have you been watching? 
Well, uh, last week I participated in Virtual South by Southwest. Yes, yes. Uh, screened a bunch of feature films as part of their lineup. Um, and I wanted to share a couple of the highlights with you. Um, I saw 27 features, and I'd say most of oh them. Oh, my God. Hey, you know what? If I'm going to pay the money for it, I'm going to get mean, my money's worth. It wasn't cheap either. No, so it I, wasn't. I get it. I get it. So I went out of my way to, to squeeze yeah. as much in as I could. Um, so there, there are three movies uh, that I wanted to mention. I, I, you know, I didn't see anything or I didn't see too many things I thought were awful. There were a couple things. Um, but but the three movies that I saw that I thought were the best. Um, well, I'll start with um, – I think this is a movie that I I messaged you about after I, yeah. I watched it. The the Welsh horror film, The Feast. Yeah, and it's a Welsh language horror film that's kind of an eco parable uh, about a rich family. They're awful. They hire this sort of like caterer waiter to come prepare a cater dinner waiter. party. Yeah, a cater waiter. They they hire her to come prepare a dinner party. She's a weirdo. We don't really know what's up with her for a while into the movie, but the whole thing just has this ominous tone that's almost like a um, – it's not as an overtly comic uh, sort of situation as like a Yorgos Lanthimos thing, yeah. but it's in the ballpark. And then oh, I like it. Uh, everything blows up in nice. some really insane, violent – terrific ways uh once you once you realize what's going on um this is a movie yeah i think you'd like it a lot i liked it a lot um probably the best and most atmospheric or successfully atmospheric horror movie i saw out of south by cool um the second is a movie called recovery and this one was was kind of a, a movie that i squeezed in a little late in the process i hadn't wanted to see it because this is a covid road trip comedy Oh. And, you know, I have – I don't know how you feel about this, but obviously screening for Sidewalk, you've probably gotten a lot of COVID-era submissions that are either like screen life movies where everything yep. takes place on Zoom or, you know, they they weave COVID and COVID isolation into the plot yep. somehow. And I don't know about you, but I find COVID – to be a total drag yeah. this close to, you know, in film, you know, this close to, you know, we're still in it. I don't want right. to watch, you know, movies yep. that sort of deal with that milieu necessarily. I but agree. Recovery was really funny. Good. This was, I mean, it's almost like a unicorn, um, an actually funny, witty, and really well-executed COVID road trip comedy. It follows two sisters who go on an ill-advised and panicky cross-country road trip to save their grandmother uh, from a nursing home uh, when COVID lockdown hits. Yeah. They, they have an older sister who lives in the area of their grandmother's nursing home, but their sister has gone on a cruise – Oh. Um, she is oh, she is okay. not taking COVID seriously. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, and and I think one of the lines that made me laugh is um, uh, she she went on the cruise despite the pandemic because quote she wasn't going to waste that Groupon, right, uh, which is right. one of those things that it's just a nice little joke. The movie is filled with a lot of really good jokes. It's got broad city vibes. Nice. Um, it's it's just a lot of like hanging out with these two young women um, who. 
uh, you're just kind of hanging out in a car driving across the country. Um, but, but it gets a lot of like comic, uh, mileage out of that. So I was really pleasantly surprised with recovery. And then the third I want to highlight is the film that ended up winning the, uh, dramatic jury award, a film called the fallout. Um, the fallout is the feature debut of uh, a director named Megan Park. Yeah. And it stars a lot of um, teen teen stars of the moment. Um, the lead is a, a young woman named Jenna Ortega. I'm not mm-hmm. familiar with her career, or I wasn't up to this point, but you also have like Maddie Ziegler um, yeah. in, in a supporting role. Redeeming herself um, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, the Fallout is a dark drama um, about teens who have survived a school shooting. Okay. Um, and oh, they are, it, it, it explores in, I think, intimate and really revealing detail, um, the trauma that comes yeah. in the aftermath. These aren't even students who were, you know, in the, the thick of it. They, you know, these are just right. students who were right. in the building when it happened. And yet this is such a traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, you know, it is, it is a very sort of, um, I hesitate to use the word important movie because it's, it doesn't have, you know, being a big important movie on its mind. Um, but it is one of the better looks at sort of the pressures and, and traumas of teenage life in this age of, of mass shootings just yeah. about every other day um, that I've seen. Uh, the, the original score is also by Billie Eilish's brother, Phineas. Mm, yeah. um, so it's got it's got the uh, the Gen Z cred, so to speak. But but I thought it was a really effective um, and and really really good movie. And I guess the jury agreed with me. So yeah. those are the three highlights for for South by for me. But there were a lot of other really good films um, that are going to be, I guess, creeping out um, over the next few months. Maybe playing uh, other festivals or. or Showing up in theaters, who knows? I mean, well, you know, yeah, who, knows? who knows what, what's going to happen with theaters? Um, but uh, those three, I, I would recommend checking out if and when they come to your neck of the woods. Cool. Um, well, you mentioned Billie Eilish, and what I've been watching, aside from rewatching some things for various reasons, um, is the Billie Eilish doc. Well, how is that thing? Um, and I, I should say it's called, you know, Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry. Um, it's 45 minutes too long. Well, that's it's it's a two and a half hour long. It's two and doc, a half right? hour long doc apparently cut down from twenty seven hours. Which, if you really submitted a twenty seven hour cut, and that's not just hype, then you don't know what you're doing. You don't know your job uh, at all. And so it, it's there's definitely some interesting stuff in it. Mm-hmm. I you know, I knew very little about Billie Eilish really. Um, I you know, like the music we've talked about this before. I didn't realize she was a huge Justin Bieber fan, and that has a particular thread through the doc that's, mm-hmm. that I think is kind of interesting. And I don't know. I wasn't expecting, even though I, I think you know a fan who's going to go see this probably would expect some level of that because it's pretty runs pretty deep for her. Uh, a lot of family stuff, a lot of stuff with her brother. The performance stuff is pretty amazing, and that I wish there was more of. Mm-hmm. You would think, okay, two and a half hours. Well, maybe they get a pass because there's a lot of performance footage. And I'm not saying there's not a lot. But it's not it, – I don't feel overwhelmed by it. I don't feel like it's taking up most of the film. What's taking up most of the film is this repetition of hitting us over the head with some details about her life that you know, you could have gotten and really quickly. Mm. Um, one thing I always – that we – you know, when I was teaching documentary film that I would say to my students a lot is like 
do your don't fall in love with your subject in a way that is going to prevent you from being able to properly represent them, fairly represent them. Yeah. And that's clearly what's happened with the documentarian here. Uh, it's too much gushing over Billie Eilish. And in addition to that, uh, not doing Billie a favor by putting so much content in. I think you do your subject a favor by being very selective in what you show the world. And you know everybody's reaction kind of has been, how the hell is there a two and a half hour documentary about somebody who's not even cleared 21 yet, right? And I think that's a fair comment. I mean, what you've just described is very frequently my problem with a lot of documentaries about musicians. Yeah, it's just too much. We don't need to see all of that, and we don't definitely don't need the repetition. So this thing could use about a 45-minute cut, and then I think it would be an interesting look at this particular era of this young woman's life sure. and the recording process, even though I'm suspicious that some of the recording process was sort of recreated. I see. Um, I could be wrong there, but that's the vibe I get. All the same, I enjoyed the film. Would have had a much more enjoyable time at an hour and a half uh, rather than two and a half hours. So uh, that's what I've been watching. What up? And now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders the third to the studio for his segment, Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was released in 1962. The film is based on a novel by Henry Farrell. Deranged former child star Baby Jane Hudson is believed to be based on former silent movie actress Mary Miles Minter. Minter's career ended abruptly in 1922 when press coverage suggested she was a prime suspect in the still-unsolved murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Although never formally charged, Minter survived for decades afterward as a progressively delusional recluse. In 1962, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis were in the twilight of their careers. Neither Davis, then 54, nor Crawford, 57, had landed a lead starring role in years. In fact, Davis had once taken out an ad in The Hollywood Reporter seeking steady employment in Hollywood. It was Crawford who first approached Davis about the film. Both realized that it was perfect for them. Who better to play two feuding former stars than the two Hollywood legends famous for their long-running rivalry? According to reports, when the idea of Davis and Crawford starring together was first pitched to the studios, one executive said, We wouldn't give you a dime for those two old broads. Shortly after Davis told this story on a TV talk show, she received a handwritten note that read, In future, please do not refer to me as an old broad. Sincerely, Joan Crawford. Ultimately, Davis signed on to Baby Jane on two conditions, that she play the title role of Jane and that the film's director, Robert Altridge, assure her he was not sleeping with Crawford. It wasn't that I cared about his private life or hers either, Davis said. I didn't want him favoring her with more close-ups. Davis's contract also specified for a Coke machine to be installed in her dressing room. This was intended to annoy Crawford, who was on the board of directors at Pepsi-Cola and had requested product placement of shots of Pepsi in the film. Sharp eyes will notice in the last sequence there's footage of a man in the background trying to collect the deposit on some empty Pepsi bottles. Crawford was more successful in promoting the work of her friends, Margaret and Walter Keene, known for their sad eyes paintings. In interior scenes of the neighbor's house, several Keene paintings can be seen on display in the wall. In interior scenes of the neighbor's house, several keen paintings can be seen displayed on the walls. Their most famous work, Big Eyes, from Crawford's own collection, can be seen by the entrance. When production began, both Davis and Crawford were excited to be working again, 
even though both the schedule and the budget were tight. To save money for Jane's driving scenes, Davis did her own driving around Hollywood with a cameraman perched either in the back seat or over the front fender. The shots of her laughing while she drives were real. Davis says the reactions of the people in other cars when they saw her were hysterical. Lots of mouths dropped. Davis also created her own makeup for Jane. What I had in mind, no professional makeup man would have dared put on me, she said. Jane looked like many women one sees on the Hollywood Boulevard. One would presume that they once were actresses and were now unemployed. I felt Jane never washed her face. She just added another layer of makeup each day. The result was rather grotesque. Davis's daughter, Barbara Merrill, who appears in the film as their teenage neighbor, thought her mother had gone too far, as did the film's director, Aldrich. But he later admitted that Davis's instincts with her over-the-top appearance and performance were perfect for Jane. While Davis took delight in looking dreadful for the film, the opposite was true of Crawford. It was difficult for her to appear unattractive, since she had always been considered one of Hollywood's most glamorous stars. It was a constant battle to get her not to look gorgeous, which wasn't a realistic depiction of Blanche, an older woman confined to a wheelchair, emaciated and wasting away. It takes a while for both leads to appear on screen. In the preamble that sets up the story in the film, there is a clip from Davis's older film, Ex Lady, used as an early film for Jane Hudson. Later, we see Blanche watching Crawford's old film, Sadie McKee, Coincidentally, the love interest in both of these films is actor Gene Raymond. In one scene where Jane beats Crawford's character Blanche, Crawford requested a body double because she didn't trust Davis not to hurt her for real. She was reportedly proved right during a close-up in which a body double could not be used, where Davis hit her hard in the head, some reporters claimed hard enough to require stitches. Crawford got her payback during the filming of another scene, where Jane drags Blanche out of bed and across the room. Knowing that Davis had back problems, Crawford made herself as heavy as possible, either by filling her pockets with rocks, wearing a weightlifter's belt, or simply making herself dead weight, depending on which report you believe, and deliberately ruined several takes, forcing Davis to drag her around again and again until she was in agony. For Davis, the most memorable scene for her is when the adult Jane sings her maudlin child signature song, I've Written a Letter to Daddy, the old Jane, gazing in the mirror from about 12 feet away, looks pretty good, described Davis. Then she walks forward. The cameraman had a highlight straight down, which is always bad for a woman, especially me. When Jane finally gets up to the mirror, she sees herself as this decrepit old hag, when in her mind, she's still young. I covered my face with my hands. Aldrich had wanted a loud scream, but what came out was a hoarse cry. I'd been having laryngitis, but it was right, and we both knew it. Principal shooting was completed in roughly a month. Aldrich really cut the picture in camera, said Davis. He had to, because we didn't have time for many setups. And he wanted to show the picture for a week in the Los Angeles area to qualify for Academy consideration. The quick turnaround paid off. The film was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Actress for Davis. Had she won, it would have set a record number of wins for one actress. According to author Sean Consendine, a jealous Crawford campaigned against Davis, even telling the other Best Actress nominees that if they were unable to accept their award, she would be happy to receive it on their behalf. On Oscar night, Davis was standing in the wings of the theater, waiting to hear the name of the winner. When it was announced that Anne Bancroft had won, Joan marched past Davis with barely an excuse me and swept on stage to accept Bancroft's Oscar. 
Although many people believe the film would be a flop, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was a smash hit upon initial release. It recouped its $750,000 budget in 11 days and eventually grossed $9 million. In adjusted dollars, this would be equivalent to $124 million today. Both stars had accepted a lower salary in exchange for a percentage of the box office, a gamble which paid off. To capitalize on this success, Davis and Crawford signed on for another picture with director Robert Altridge based on another short story from Henry Farrell called Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte? For this film, Aldrich's idea was that the two actresses would switch the roles from the previous one, with Crawford playing the devious cousin trying to manipulate the innocent Davis into giving up her estate. Filming began in the summer of 1964 in Baton Rouge. The bad blood over the 1962 Oscars, however, carried over between the two actresses, and Crawford ultimately left the production during shooting and was replaced with Olivia de Havilland. The film retitled Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, was nominated for seven Oscars. Following Crawford's death in May of 1977, Davis is often quoted as saying, You should never say bad things about the dead. You should only say good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. Thanks for listening to Side Talks, where your own personal cinematic David Letterman and Jay Leno Oh, no. Yeah. Ah, Mavis. Mavis. <laughs> oh, I said you I wear denim. One. I like cars. I don't know. I like cars. I don't even know. What does David Letterman even like? Um, I like beards. <laughs> these um, days. I mean, yeah, for reals. So thanks for listening to Side Talks. Thanks for, to Batwell Studios. Uh, check us out on social media at Sidewalk Film on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Sidewalkfest.com is where you can find cinema showtimes and more information about all the fun stuff that sidewalk is up to have a good day bye batwell studios podcast division your words our expertise